I no longer practiced a religion. I was raised as a kid, but I no longer blame the church. The church wasn't the problem. The Air Force wasn't the problem. The police department wasn't the problem. I was the problem. I was the problem long before I picked up the drink. I definitely was the problem as I drank. And when I put the drink down, until I changed, until I embarked on this way of living, I was still the problem. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hola, mi amigos, mi amigas. That was the voice of Mr. Bobby C that you heard at the beginning of this episode here on Sober Speak, episode number 164. And you are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment, but... First things first, this episode, the one you are listening to right now is brought to you by, by the way, we had a uh, Sober Speak Live event and you're going to hear quite a few names, but I want to make sure we get recognition for all these folks. Anyway, it's brought to you by Brian and Bill and David and Chris and Maria and Jennifer and Nestor and Ronnie and Destiny and Nancy and Jim and Angela and Natalie and Anicia and Laura, do you know what Brian and Bill and David and Chris and Maria and Jennifer and Nestor and Ronnie and Destiny and Nancy and Jim and Angela and Natalie and Anicia and Laura all did? Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on that little PayPal tab. It used to be yellow. I don't think it's yellow anymore, and we're working on that. But anyway, they clicked on that little PayPal tab, and they made a contribution. So this episode goes right out to Brian and Bill and David and Chris and Maria and Jennifer and Nestor and Ronnie and Destiny and Nancy and Jim and Angela and Natalie and Anicia and Laura. Thank you so, so much for your generosity. Really appreciate it. Uh, I have a couple of uh, thank yous that I want to get out of the way here on the beginning of this episode. First of all, I, um, a meeting in Utah uh, invited me to come speak uh, last uh, week, and uh, it was so nice seeing all of you, just being able to see people face to face. I wish I could give you a great big hug before and after the meeting, but uh, it is the where there is a will, there is a way meeting up in Utah. And it was uh, 
uh, so nice to spend time with you all. But, and you know, I want to know, I want you to know this as well. If any of you are out there and you have Zoom meetings uh, for your local groups and and you would like uh, somebody that has appeared on the Sober Speak podcast to come and appear for you, I can come sometimes if and when I'm available. Um, but also, I have a list of emails of the folks. Uh, there's probably 10 to 12 of them that have been on this podcast before and they have agreed that I can give their emails and first names out and you can contact them and get them to come speak at your group if you would like. Uh, but just contact me at john at j-o-h-n at soberspeak.com and we will make sure to get those uh, emails out to you and you can have one of those uh, speakers for your meeting if you need such. I also want to say thank you to Gary Kay for last week, last Friday night, we had a spectacular live event and I will be, and not only Gary, but Shannon, the lovely Mrs. M who uh, helped me to put it all together and Cassandra who uh, basically came in and helped us. Uh, she was a bouncer for us, and kind of kept an eye on things and uh, she helped me with the event as well. And uh, But the, the recordings that we have with Gary K. For those of you who are not able to make it, I will be putting out actually in a couple of different episodes. And one of them will be with just me and Gary talking on the front end of it. And then on the second half, we actually had a Q&A session with all the people that were there, or as Gary called it, not a Q&A session, but a, a question and response session, not so much a, a uh, an answer. And so anyway, I'll be putting those out as a couple different episodes here in the future. And when I say the future, I probably within the next couple, three weeks, something like that. It takes a little while to put these together here, folks. I'm looking at my surroundings right here, and I this is just kind of coming. I'm like going, do I really want to talk about this? Yeah, but so to me, it's very interesting. This is a slice of my life, if you will. Um so I have all my podcast equipment, as you can imagine. There's a monitor. I have a digital recorder, a, a PC. I have, you know, backup drives, I headphones, all that kind of stuff that goes along with a recording a podcast. And that's just a portion of it, by the way. And the mics. Obviously, I'm talking into a mic right now. And then I also have, uh, in the background, I have, my wife uses this area to store a lot of uh, the lovely Mrs. M. She uses a lot, uh, this area to store a lot of all the Christmas stuff. And so it kind of looks like, uh, and I mean this in a positive way, it sounds gross, but the Christmas kind of came in here and threw up all over the place. <laughs> and uh, But I love it. I mean, I absolutely love it. She's got... Oh, there's yarn. I have no idea what she does with that yarn. I see wrapping paper. I see boxes that presents go in. They're fancy looking little boxes. There's uh, scissors on the floor. There's uh, just all kinds of Christmas stuff. And it's going up in the house. You know, she does this every year. Um, and I'm very appreciative that she does it all. Uh, it takes a lot of time to get all this together. And then... I also have a television in the background, and it's on, it's silent, I'm watching a professional uh, uh, football, I'm a big football fan, uh, professional football especially, 
big Dallas Cowboys fan, and it's a it's a rotten year to be a big Dallas Cowboys fan. In fact, it's been a rotten twenty years to be a big Dallas Cowboys fan. But oh, I don't know. I hang in there. I have all my 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 yoga stuff, um, and you know, because I use this room to do yoga in, and uh, so uh, it's all my, my mats and my uh, just all this stuff that I use for yoga. And so, anyway, it's just it's kind of a, a really it's kind of a slice of my life. The room is very uh, disorganized right now. Oh, and there's the guest bed with all my podcast uh, other podcast equipment and books and all that stuff uh, that's laying on it i basically use that as a desk i'm hoping to remedy that uh, fairly soon but it, it's all disorganized but uh, I, I love it right this is just a slice of life for me and you know the kids come in here a lot when I'm recording, and you know they they don't care. They you've heard me talk about you've heard them come in and interrupt me a lot of times actually while I'm recording. But uh, nonetheless, that just kind of came to mind, and uh, I wanted to share that with you, my friends. Oh, hold on, my amigos de la Bill Duble. Uh, is that how you pronounce? That's how you pronounce W in Spanish, right? So you know now I'm kind of wondering this on off the cuff here. If you're in Mexico or you're in a, another place where they speak Spanish, do people come up and say, "Hey, are you a friend of Bill Duble? Are you an amigo of Bill Duble?" You know how that's kind of like code, you know, like for "Are you in the program?" Um, I wonder if they do that. Maybe somebody uh, who knows Spanish can uh, actually help me with that. Nonetheless, if you are not in the Super Secret Facebook group and you would like to be, send me your email associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and we will get you out an invite to that meeting. Now, on to a little bit of Mr. Bobby C. And this was recorded live at the Tri-Cities event. Bobby C. is a member of the Franklin Group in Philadelphia. He comes from a big family, seven brothers and sisters. By the way, Bobby is a huge Eagles fan, and we have had a couple different conversations about that. Uh, you know, of course, he rubs in the one Super Bowl that they won. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, we have many, but, you know, I have to go back many, many years to get there. I completely understand it. But anyway, uh, he comes from a big family, seven brothers and sisters. He's going to tell you about the standing ovation that he got from 37,000 fans when he ran onto the field during a Philadelphia Philly baseball game. It's quite a story. He's going to talk about his career with the Philly Police Department and the ups and downs that went along with that job. How Memorial Day in 1988 was a turning point for his life. He's going to talk about his battle with lung cancer at 33 years old and his newfound life as a married man in sobriety after being a bachelor for many, many moons. And a couple things before we get to Mr. Uh, Bobby C., I want to mention there's a gentleman who's been on this uh, podcast in the past. His name was Brooks B. He was in his 80s um, and uh, he acquired COVID this last week. 
And that concluded his experience here on this earth. Mr. Brooksby, we hope to see you at the big meeting in the sky one day, my friend. Rest in peace. Thank you for all that you did for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous during your life here on this earth. And least but not least, uh, before we get to Bobby C., I want to mention my um, message to you for this day, for whenever you're listening to it, is Easy Does It, and you're about to hear the classical version of Easy Does It, brought to you by Kamal, a listener of Sober Speak. Y'all are so talented, and this is a classical version of Easy Does It. Thank you so much, Kamal, for submitting this. Buckle up, ladies and gents, and enjoy the ride. I know you will, and we're going to have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. So stay tuned after you listen to Bobby C. Enjoy. My name is Dan, and I'm an alcoholic. We're glad you're all here at the Tri-City Speaker Meeting. This talk will be audio recorded by SoberSpeak.com and will be available for play sometime in the near future. So Tri-City is a meeting supported by multiple North Texas groups to encourage unity through fellowship in the North Texas area. This is an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, meaning anyone is welcome to attend. We would especially like to welcome family and friends. Let's open with a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. A is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So tonight, our speaker is Bobby C. from the Franklin Group in Philadelphia. Let's give him a warm welcome. My name is Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Through the grace of God, the 12 steps and sponsorship, I've been sober since June 2nd of 1988. For that, I'm grateful. I always add, so are my neighbors. <laughs> they are very grateful. And so I was a neighbor from hell. I have a home group. It is the Franklin Town Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we have a Wednesday night. Actually, well, it's all zoned, but this is our schedule anyway. Wednesday, 6.30, we have a speaker meeting. Saturday afternoon at 5.30, we have a big bulk meeting. Sunday morning at 9.30, we have a step meeting with the last Sunday of the month being a tradition meeting. Uh, we're at 2044 Fairmont Avenue, right across the street from the Eastern State Penitentiary. So if you're ever in Philly, stop by. We'd love to have you. Uh, I, I, I thank you for the invitation. I have, uh, I've actually been to the Frisco Group and been to Dallas North and I, uh, Preston. And I've been all, I have had lots of friends in the Dallas area. And I'm just really amazed the number of Philadelphia Eagles fans that are in the Dallas area. So, uh, but that's an outside issue. I, I hope that gets better, but uh, that's enough said on that. 
chapter five of the big book, it tells me, gives me clear cut directions. I'm supposed to share with you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was born and raised in a very blue collar ethnic neighborhood. I got seven brothers and sisters, and we were one of the smaller families on the block. Uh, I never felt a part of, and that's pretty tough to do when you have 10 people living in a small three-bedroom row home. But that would be the story of my life, not feeling a part of, until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, I was just a kid when I had my first drink. I didn't get drunk the first time I drank, but I remember what it was. It was Ballantine beer. And I remember that because Ballantyne used to sponsor the Phillies. And my father would take me up to Connie Mack Stadium to watch the Phillies play. And they had this big scoreboard in right center field that was sponsored by Ballantyne and had the three rings, their logos. And uh, it was a uh, there was a party. My grandparents lived around the corner from us. These were my dad's parents. Both sets of my grandparents were immigrants. And uh, my my dad's parents lived right around the corner from us. My mother's uh, parents a few more blocks away. But uh, my grandparents' basement was finished into a bar. And that's where all the family functions were held. Mm-hmm. And there were always lots of family functions. Uh, my mother's one of 12. My father from a much smaller family. He was one of 11. And there was always <laughs> there was always a celebration, a christening, a graduation, a confirmation. Uh, there was always a party. And I loved being there, you know, the music and the drinking. And uh, I would run around in the basement bar and polish off the half empties or the half full. It depends on your perception. But I remember my uncles were pointing at, hey, look at Bobby. And, that, and that's like the first time I ever had any type of recognition. And But, um, but my drinking really took off in high school. Now, most of the kids in my neighborhood went to the local diocesan high school. But my parents, being children of immigrants, knew the only way to make in this country is by education. So they made a great deal of sacrifice to send my brothers and sisters. Uh, so I went to a private school. Then in high school, I went to a private Jesuit high school where most of the kids who went to the school were from affluent families from the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Just me and a couple of the dirt balls in the neighborhood went to the school. And right away, we terrified these kids. Uh, you know, terrorized them, I should say. Whether they were terrified, I don't know, but we terrorized them. You know, the school was in the middle of the inner city, and there was a lot of these kids. There was first introduction to the inner city. So as they were getting dropped off and their parents in their luxury automobiles, me and the guys from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. Now, I know that was wrong. I knew that by that, by the values instilled in me, by the nonsense of kid and by my parents, but the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed every, anything else, you know? And one of my nicknames was Crazy Coil. And I would do things that my gut I knew was wrong, but I didn't want to disappoint you, you know? And I was like your entertainment committee. And we did things like um, we saw football pools, and if you hit, we wouldn't pay off. But they kept coming back. If you want to buy a particular substance, we would sell you a substitute substance. And they kept coming back. I mean, we went through more oregano than a pizzeria. But these kids, we thought we were gangsters. We were idiots, you know. But that's what happened. Uh, very challenging school academically. I'm not making the dean's list, but I'm not failing out either. Just do the bare minimum effort required to get by. You know, and when it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education. And I knew that would cause some problems at home. 
because my parents didn't have much. They, they made a great deal of sacrifice to provide this education. So I know I couldn't stay home because there, there will be hell to catch. And I don't like to catch hell. I love to create hell, but I don't like to catch the repercussions that come with it. And I'm thinking, like, well, what are my options? And they were limited. So what I thought available to me was the only option was to join the service. And that's what I did. Now, I'm not going to talk politics, but I just want to set the scene. It's uh, it's the 70s. Jimmy Carter's the president. One of his first action was to uh, give a pardon to all the guys who went up north, the Canada. There were still guys there. The military was not popular at all. Not at all. But that was, I thought, my only option. So I go in. I go through all this training. I get deployed. I go overseas. And that's when my drinking really took off. When I was on duty, I was squared away. Off duty, I was getting loaded. And I was overseas about, you know, it was a short four, five months tops. And there was an incident in which three of my closest friends were killed. And I didn't know how to handle that, you know. And even I now know that there was a lot of help extended and offered to me. But I kept everyone at bay. And I would use it as an excuse to crawl in a bottle. And that's what I would do. I would, uh, you know, just finish my enlistment, you know, on duty, like I said, scored away, off duty, just drinking to numb the pain. When my enlistment was up, I came home, I enrolled in school, I went to St. Joe's, and I wound up taking a couple of civil service exams. St. Joe's still a small school, but when I was there, I don't think we had 3,000, 3,500 kids, tops, 15 kids in the classroom. And the same thing, I'm not making the dean's list, but I'm not failing out either. Just do the bare minimum effort required to get by. It was at the end of the spring semester, my freshman year, kid from the neighborhood called me. He said, Bobby, the Phillies are playing tomorrow. One of those businessman specials, you know, one of those midweek, mid-afternoon game. And he said, you want to go to the game? I said, sure. No one's going to miss me in the classroom. I'm not an active participant. So I cut class and I went to the game. And the Phillies have since moved. They're playing at Vet Stadium down in South Philadelphia. And it was at the end of the spring semester. It was an unusual day. It was in May, and it was really unusually warm. And me and the guys at the top of the 700 level drinking that cheap watered-down beer. And I turned to the guys I was with. I said, you know what? I'm going to run down in the field and meet one of the players. And they kind of shrugged me up and said, okay, Bobby. Because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. I lied about everything. I talked to you. I should have started off once upon a time. I lied when I was better suited to tell the truth. Now, you may find this hard to believe. I even lied about my ethnic heritage, which is unbelievable. I mean, one look at me, I'm as Irish as Patty's pig. I mean, there's no doubt about it. My grandparents were off the boat, uh, you know. So so in my neighborhood, we had a social, actually, we had several social clubs, and they were usually aligned with uh, an ethnic group. Well, there's one particular one, the Ukrainian-American Social Club, the Yuki Club. And my experience, these your social clubs and VFW posts really are nothing but speakeasies. I mean, to tell the truth. So I'm in the Yuki club one night. And for some reason, I felt compelled to tell the bartender that my mother was Ukrainian. He never asked. I don't know why. I just thought I'd volunteer that information. Me and my brother, Brian, we're in there about a month later. And I come in and the, the same bartender, he said, oh, here's Bobby the Yuki. <laughs> My brother's head snapped around so quickly. He said, what the hell did you tell that guy? I said, I don't know. I don't think I ever saw him before. But, you know, it just goes to show you, I, my, self, my sense of self was so warped and 
low self-esteem. I didn't like anyone. I didn't think you would like me for who I was. So I was constantly always reinventing myself. And it was just, it was just a mess. So back to the game. I worked my way down to the picnic area. We had one in like in the left field and right field corners. And before I knew it, I heard all the fence and I'm running across the outfield. I'm in center field before I realized what I had done. But by then it's too late. You got to finish, right? And I go running out and the San Diego Padres were in town. And Dave Winfield was the right fielder for the Padres. And I go out, I shake his hand and say, hey, Dave, how you doing? <laughs> and he looked at me. He's a big dude. He like six five. I mean, he was a guy. He was a giant. And behind him, and he looked at me. He said, brother, what are you down there? What are you doing out here? And from behind him, I saw the guards coming. I said, Dave, I got to go now. And I start running towards the infield. And I don't know why. I went to slide into second base. I don't know. I just thought that'd be a pretty cool thing to do. But as I was running towards the infield, there was more guards coming from the third base side. And I couldn't do it. Yes. Oh, okay. I thought someone yelled my name. I'm the, see, it's still audio uh, hallucinations, 32 years over. So I'm about to slide into second base, and, but then there was guards coming, so I knew I couldn't do that. i get caught, so I turned around and started going towards first base. And I'm like a slow trot, like to give myself up where there was more security coming. And the last second, I deep the guy, and I ran out in the outfield. Now I'm running around like a screwball. It seems like 10 minutes, but it's probably closer to two or three, right? But the guards, these young, short, fat guys from South Philly, they're tripping over each other. It looks like the Keystone Cops. And I'm in the best shape of my life. I just got out of service four years. I'm, you know, joking and jiving, but I got nowhere to go. The fence is 12 feet high. I'm drunk. I'm out of breath. I'm actually about to get sick. So I stopped. I just wait for them. I stopped in center field and the guards coming. I swear to God, they took me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. The place was going nuts. They really were. They take me up to the bullpen and Tug McGraw was in the bullpen for the Phillies. And the Tugger gave me the thumbs up. I like to think he was loaded because Tugger had a reputation of knocking him back. Right now, I knew I was going to get a beating from these guards because I'm, I made them look so stupid. I was okay with that because I pictured this. I said, you know, by the time I get out of jail, I'd be back in the neighborhood. I could, this is a story I could drink for free for at least a week. And, you know, this be a type of story I'd make up, bullshit Bob. But I had those four guys in the neighborhood and I actually pictured myself going into the bar, having the shot glasses sit up in front of me. And it's just as about to get my beaten, a Philadelphia police lieutenant showed up. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? You high? What are you doing? I said, listen, I just got home. I was overseas, just got home, just happy. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> he said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. So not only, not only did he save me from getting a beaten, but he saved me from getting arrested. And that would be important uh, because about six weeks later, one of those civil service exams kind of pounded out. And I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. <laughs> they were hiring anybody back then, I tell you. Now, I tell that story for a couple of different reasons. One, it's the only funny story I got. I wasn't a funny guy. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a lover. I was a lying, thieving, stealing, violent, falling down drunk. And if you came in contact with me, I harmed you. Uh, and I, I use and, I, I and abuse everybody around me. Secondly, it's a true story. Two of those guys are now sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and a number of years. And thank God the first guy came in and said, man, I know you guys thought I was lying. He got my back. 
But thirdly, I guess even more importantly, there's a lot of things about my drinking I don't remember. Uh, when I got sober, I spent six months in the VA hospital. And I remember I was there about a month or so, and a doctor come up to me. So listen, did you ever have any blackouts? I said, nope. I must have answered too quickly. He said, do you know what they are? I said, nope. Once he described them, I said, all the time. I just thought that was natural. Like Thursday was payday. I'd wake up on Friday, like with four crumpled ones and three quarters on my dresser. Where did I park my car? What did I do? Who were you? I mean, I just thought that was normal. And I would show up at the corner the next day and guys would be telling me that the stunts that I pulled the night before. And I'd be telling those stories like I had memory myself. I was a blackout drinker from the very first start. So I spent the first part of my career in North Philadelphia, where I would see the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of the tour, I would go, go, go out with guys in the squad and just drink, you know, just to numb the pain. I saw things on the job that bothered me, but I couldn't tell anybody that because I didn't want to be thought less than. I engaged in behaviors I knew was wrong, the way I treated people, the way I spoke to people, but the need for me to be accepted by my coworkers outweighed anything else. And I'm willing to compromise the values and, and principles that were instilled in me by the nuns as a kid, by my parents, by the Jesuits in high school, by the officers of the Air Force, uh, you know, by my training officers under the police department. But I'm willing to compromise values and principles just to be accepted by a small group of whack jobs, you know. And my, ugly, my drinking got ugly quickly. I'm at work one day and my immediate supervisor pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what, kid, you're smart. You're going to go places, but that booze is going to mess you up. In one ear and out the other. I'm at a family function one night. My uncle, was uh, he was a boss in a job. He pulled me off to the side. He said, Bobby, I'm hearing stories about you. You're going to get your stuff in the jackpot. You better slow down. Take it easy. In one ear and out the other. Several years later, on two separate occasions, I ran into my uncle and that supervisor in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized at that point that they were trying to 12-step me. And I remember going up to my uncle and said, yo, uncle, how come you didn't tell me? And he just smiled at what like the old timers do. He said, Bobby, you just weren't ready yet. Which just goes to show you that all the drinking and all the nonsense that went with it were necessary for me to hit my bottom. I was 24 years old and was involved in an incident in which a 15-year-old kid lost his life. And uh, it was a terrible situation that could not be avoided. And I used it as an excuse to crawl in the bottle. And that's what I would do for the next three years. I wound up getting sober at 27, but drinking took me to a lot of my nevers. One of those nevers, I wound up getting promoted and transferred, and I was doing this particular type of work. So I justified drinking on the job. I would never do this. Like I was squared away. Like when I was in uniform, like the leather was all shiny and, you know, uh, but uh, it was just drinking on the job. One night, my uh, my uh, judgment was so impaired by my drinking on duty that I thought I needed to do other substances. And I justified that by the nature of the work I was doing. And that was my biggest never. I would never do this. Like, I never even smoked a joint, you know. I, and I had a pre, I had a, uh, an idea. People did certain substances. I just didn't think. I thought less than. Uh, but that's what I did. And my use of other substances is very short, 15, 16 months max. And out of respect, 
uh, out of the fifth tradition. That's why I need to talk about that stuff. So, Bob, please feel free to use your imagination. You know, let it run wild. <laughs> Most of the stuff I did, I, I took off you anyway. So, but it was, uh, you know, it was Memorial Day weekend, 1988. I mean, the guys I worked with, we were in some trouble. We'd go to get our story straight, which happened to be in a bar. One thing led to another thing. And uh, it just turned out to be another drunken nightmare. And one of the guys I was with decided he needed to go home. God forbid, take care of some sort of family obligation. I didn't. I thought I, I wasn't as drunk as he was. And I thought I, I would give him a ride home. It would turn out to be a poor decision. But, you know. They're the type of decision. They're the only decisions I made were poor. Um, so I'm going to show off my driving skills. Now, the vehicle I drive, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the city. But I see things on television and movies. So I can do that, you know. Um, I'm three sheets to the wind, and I'm driving. And I'm driving out this narrow one-way street, and there was a kid riding towards me on a bicycle, and there's a big stone wall on my left-hand side. And for some reason, I thought it'd be funny for this kid to jump the curb and grab the wall. Didn't know why I thought that'd be funny. I just thought it would be. And unfortunately, at the last second, we both turned in the same direction. I ride that kid over. As he lied bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car with my nightstick and was going to beat this kid because I thought he was milking me or the city for an insurance claim. The guy that I was with prevented me from doing that. I took this kid off the hood of my car. I threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car, threw that off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar, made some sort of smart alcohol remark, and I continued on drinking. When I came to the next day, I realized I was in serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody would help me because such a creep. And believe me, I'm a creep in all areas of my life. I don't know what to do. So what I did do, I got a bottle of liquor, a case of beer, and some other substances, and I checked in a hotel with the intent to consume all this stuff to build up their garage and my life. And three days later, I guess that's why I had the money for them knocking on the door to kick me out. At this point, I'm suspended from my job, so I no longer have access to my weapon, so I can't shoot myself. So I walk over to the window, and I open up the window, and I'm going to jump out the window to end my life. I opened up the window. I was on the fifth floor. I remembered I was scared of heights. <laughs> Pretty pathetic. I made 23 jumps in the surface. I never overcame my fear of heights. I go in the bathroom. I filled the bathtub of water and I had a blow dryer. I was going to pull the blow dryer into the tub to make it appear an accidental electrocution. How you would accidentally electrocute yourself in the tub with a blow dryer, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. And I'm pull every time I pull the blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. I was about a foot and a half short on cord. And I got one foot in the tub laying and trying to plug it in. And it was a pretty pathetic feeling. It would be the last day I had a drink. And I, I would not know that either. And, and I'm glad I didn't know because I probably would have done something a little differently, like The Blaze of Glory. And like one of my favorite movies is A Wonderful Life. And who knows if I, you just change one thing and it could change everything else in your life. So the last, uh, the only tool that I had left was my car. So I took one last spin to the neighborhood. I went by like the school, the grade school I went to as a kid, to the corner I hung on. And I started up at the uh, Falls Bridge, which is the winding, uh, uh, which is on the East River Drive, the winding road along the Schuylkill River. And I come down the drive with the intent to go on the oncoming traffic that in my life. And this would be like a Wednesday or Thursday. It was late morning, 
11 o'clock-ish, something like that. Because if this were any other time of day, I would have succeeded what I set out to do, you know. And and this, uh, on the, the speed limit back down on the drive, I, th- I think it was 25, and I'm probably doing 50. And I'm cooked, and I'm out of my mind. I'm coming down the drive. And I'm surprised I can get into an accident because I just had no control. And at the end of East River Drive, it's Boathouse Row, and I drew my car up on the sidewalk. And uh, I just cried like a baby. And uh, I need to back up for a moment. A couple of weeks before, I'm home from work and reading the daily news, and there's an article. At the end of the article, there's a series of questions. It says alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, marital problems, thoughts of suicide. I was four out of five because I was single. And I'm sure if I was married, I'm a bat in a thousand. And they talk, they talk about the moment of clarity as soon as it came, it quickly left. But something made me cut that article out, and I stuck it in my wallet. Two weeks later, I'm, I'm sitting on the curb of the uh, outside Boathouse Row and just crying like a baby. And I reach into my glove box because I always had the extra gun there and that wasn't there. God forbid I probably sold it. Who knows? But in my glove box was my wallet. And inside that wallet was that article that I clipped out of the news two weeks before. And this is no longer there, but it's one of these old glass, uh, glass and closed phone booths. And I dialed the phone number up, uh, this article. And the woman who answered this phone, I, I spoke to this lady like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. I told her everything was going on in my sad, miserable life. And God bless her. She listened patiently. And when I got done, she said, listen, why don't you drive over to Hahnemann Hospital? So they'll, they'll talk to you. And that was like a five-minute ride. I drove over to Hahnemann. They were waiting for me. They met me to 10th floor of a psychiatric unit. And they kept me there about three or four days. It got me stabilized from family. They transferred me to the VA hospital in West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And from there, I got transferred to another VA hospital in Coatesville, where I would spend another few weeks in their flight deck before I got put into the alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over that day and made that phone call, Alcoholics Anonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I don't believe I was an alcoholic. Alcoholic were these poor people I was dealing with on the streets day in, day out. They were alcoholic. You know, uh, my, maybe my problem was this short use of other substances. If I never picked that stuff up, I'd be okay. Maybe I got this mental illness and I heard this from my mother. Maybe I got this stress disorder. I got this in the service. Or I got this in the job. Maybe it's the neighborhood I live in. Maybe it's uh, I'm a mummer. I don't know, but it can't be alcohol because the only time I was a beer drinker and you can't be an alcoholic drinking beer. And the only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or payday. But I was a beer drinker and beer really doesn't count, you know. So when I finally got into the alcohol and drug ward at the VA hospital, it's probably the first time in about eight to 10 weeks the handles are there's handles on both sides of the door. And it's amazing how quickly the arrogance comes back into a guy like me. So I got to wander, scout the land, right? And I wander into the day room. And in the day room, they had the large window shades of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And I zip through those steps. I get about half of them done. I see the amends. They're screwed. That won't be happening. Not my neighborhood. There's no amends making. That, that's a sign of weakness. That, that, that's just not happening. And later that night, two men came up. I would later find out they were part of the treatment facility committee. I did not know that then. The moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't identify with, couldn't relate to, I I would immediately tune him out. I was too busy listening to the messenger, not the message. 
Now I'm looking around my my community, my peers, and realize the decision to do something about my drink was premature. I mean, these guys, man, 30s, 40s, I mean, Christ, there's guys in their 50s. Oh, my God, what am I doing here? These guys had wives who hated them, stay away orders, support issues, kids wouldn't talk to them. I didn't have that issue. Probably due to the fact that I never married and didn't have any children. These guys had employment issues. I had no employment issues. I've only had one employer. Actually, two. I went from high school to the Air Force to the city of Philadelphia where I'm still employed. These guys had legal problems. I had no legal problems. Probably due to the fact that I had a gold shield in my back pocket. I'm looking for the differences and not the similarities. But what bothered me the most, without any question, was at the end of the meeting, when everyone got in circle and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what you're about, I definitely did not want them. I didn't want anything to do with you because I hated God. And I know there are strong words, but it doesn't even begin to sum up the feelings. And I hated God for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons I hated God, I, I mentioned briefly my mother's mental illness. I mean, having eight kids in an 11 and a half year span, God forbid, uh, but I don't think postpartum depression was a diagnosis back in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, uh, she had just had a lot of issues. And I was 15 years old. I came home uh, from school and it was just a house was eerily quiet. And I went down the basement. I found my mother. She had slit her wrists. And she looked at me, she said, Bobby, help me. And I looked down at her, I said, good for you. And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to get a bottle. And I drank the bottle. And I came home later that night. My father told me what happened. He acted surprised. So that happened when I was 15. I got sober when I was 27. That's 12 years of hating God. And that's a just a very strong resentment. And so um, I wouldn't hold hands and I didn't say prayers. And I now know what the chairperson said. He said, for those who care to join. But because of my misdirected resentment was so great, I couldn't think clearly. I couldn't respect your right to pray. And I would kick the chairs and I just made all lights and all types of noise to let you know that I was uncomfortable. I was about to get discharged. The night before I got discharged, a nurse came up to me. She had to be a member of Al-Anon. She was just a beautiful lady who saw all through my BS. And that's all it was. It was a facade to keep people at bay. She came up to me. She said, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I need to tell you, that's the best piece of advice I got. And that's where I would get my recovery. And I, I've gone to AA and I went, I went all the time, you know, two or three times a day, depending when I was working. I, I'm on fire. Except when I walked in on a big book meeting, that was, that would by accident I would leave a step meeting. Yeah, I, I that was by accident too. I would leave at the break. Tradition meetings that that was definitely an accident. Uh, tradition meetings rules. I'm not interested in rules. My line of work we like to enforce them. We don't like to follow them. They're for other people. Rules they're out too. I'm interested in war stories. That's why speaker meetings, war stories. And the moment that speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't relate to, didn't identify with, I'd immediately tune him out. Too busy listening to the messenger, not the message. But I was a meeting maker. <laughs> and I was crazy as a bedbug. I was just nuts. 11 months sober, I'm sitting in this bar because they sold the best roast beef in the city. 
Now it is the best roast beef in the city, but that's a lie. 32 years ago, if you asked me, Bobby, why are you there? Best roast beef in the city. <laughs> but the truth is, towards the end of my drinking, there was a lot of negative publicity, and I don't want you to people. It was a mistaken identity. I don't want people to confuse me with my brother, Sean, and my brother, Brian, because they were also on the job. Oh, that's not me. They're my brothers. I'm good. Things are good. So I was in bars drinking seltzer, uh, you know, because I thought that was cool. So, um, and unfortunately, this particular day, this guy walked, the guy from the neighborhood walked in and he just got a little too close to me for my comfort. And I stood up, I punched him in the face as I was holding a rock glass full of seltzer. And he, I opened him up, he dropped like a bag of rocks, he blood like a pig. The wagon crew came in. I used to work with one of the guys and I can, he wanted to hear my version. I told him what had happened. I could still see the look of disgust in his eyes. He says, you know what? You're nuts. You better get out of here. And I since, you know, we got a great place that sells roast beef, that, that there's no alcohol. And if you're ever in, in Philadelphia, I'd love to take you out. But it just shows you, I was just as nuts. A month later was my one-year anniversary in my home group that it, you would tell your story. And I got done speaking. It was amazing. It was thunderous applause. The blind could see. The lame walked. It was truly miraculous. And people came up and they patted me in the back and said, way to go, Bobby, you're doing so good. And I lied during my entire story. I identified myself as an alcoholic because that was the group conscience. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. Again, I thought it was the short use of other substances. Maybe I got this stress disorder. I got this mental illness. It's the neighborhood I live in. I'm a mummer. I don't know. Can't be alcohol because I'm a beer drinker. In fact, during the course of my story, a bottle of beer appeared in my head. But you guys don't want to hear that. You want to hear all the quotes. And I get sober at 27. I was someone on the ball, so I didn't fry all the cells. So I'm sure I sounded like the second coming of Bill Wilson. But all I was doing, I was just parroting. I wasn't sharing because I didn't have the experience. And when you patted me in the back, I was dying inside because I knew that I was a fraud. 23 months sober, I beat another man with a baseball bat. I used to flippantly say, I forget what step I was working that day, but I realized that flippant remark takes away the viciousness and the ugliness of the attack. Regular attendance at meetings in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I beat another human being above the, uh, above the shoulders in the face and the head with a baseball bat. I struck him four times. I used to say I was a creep with new women. I was a creep with all women. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat. I did everything wrong you could do in Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing I didn't do, I didn't pick up a drink. Because I just heard, just don't drink. Okay, I just won't drink. I'll make a pass at your wife, but I just won't drink. I mean, I was just nuts, you know. Second anniversary came and went. I didn't celebrate it. A month after my second anniversary, I want to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but 25 months before I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am stone cold sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to take my life. Safe to assume my life is unmanageable. Did I tell you I didn't have a sponsor? Or did you guys did you kind of figure that out on your own? No sponsor, just no, it was just nuts. So uh, this Friday night I'm at this meeting. And there's a guy at my neighborhood who was in and out of jail in the, in the 60s and 70s. And he was at my very first outside meeting. And I went up to him and I knew that he was still walking the walk, you know. And I go up to him after the meeting. I said, Bobby, I said, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? And he looked me dead in the eye. He said, Bobby, I've been watching you these past couple of years. And I'm sticking my chest. I said, he kind of likes me. 
He says, I need to tell you, you're full of shit. That's not the response I'm looking for. He said, I'll be your sponsor under certain conditions. You're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting. You're going to go to a step meeting week. You're going to go to a tradition meeting. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment. And you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm talking to myself. Who's he talking to? I'm sober 25 months. I'm selling the grapevines. I got it going on. <laughs> Which I didn't. I was just nuts. So I said, okay. So I, so uh, it's amazing because he was a tough dude in and out of jail. But in the meeting, he never used the profanity. I used the F word as a noun, a verb, and an adjective. It was amazing. So I go back to his house. Every other word is the F bomb with him talking to me. So, and so I guess it's language of the heart, you know? So he knew what I was doing and he knew I was full of crap. And so um, that night, I mean, we picked up a big book, one of these. And uh, that night we went through the first three steps. It was amazing. And actually, when we did the third step, he said, we got to get on knees and say the third step prayer. So I get this, I hate God. But I said, okay, there was something about this guy that I knew that I was safe with. You know, uh, I just knew because I knew him. I, I knew what he used to be like. Uh, he led a life of crime. And here he was sober years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And even though he had a lot of ink, he would wear long sleeve shirts to cover up the ink. And he had women friends because he treated them with dignity and respect. And even though he was a tough guy, uh, he wasn't telling war stories from the podium. And you could tell that he was tough, but he didn't care. He, you know, he was a true gentleman. So I knew that I was safe with him. So uh, we got on our knees and we said the third step prayer. And the way, and then when we got done, he said, Bobby, the way we pick paper, uh, we do a third step, we pick paper and pen up and do a fourth step. So, whoa, whoa. Easy does it. Let's keep this simple. How about I just don't drink and go to a meeting? And I know the purpose of the slogans, but I'm using a twist around not to do any work. And I really don't want to do an inventory. I'm going to meetings. People say, oh, do an inventory. Stir himself up. I feel like going out. I want to eat my gun. You can't get no further out than that. I did my inventory and I only have uh, 17 minutes left. So I can't go through the rest of the steps, but I did the steps. And my life got better. Things around me didn't always got better, but I got better. Just to let you know, when I did my fist up with my sponsor, I was like 33, 34 months sober, just a couple of months shy of three years. Uh, I wish I had a different experience, but I don't. That was the experience. That was the road that I traveled. Didn't have to be. I didn't wake up one morning and say I was going to get involved in the steps and be a decent human being. I got involved in the steps through pain and desperation, you know? And uh, if someone's new, I hope you don't do it that way, but here I got to tell you that's the way I did it. And uh, things got better, man. I got better. I got better. And I was it was just my life took off. I then got involved in the service and I learned about the traditions. And I love the traditions. I got involved in the area. And, and I'm actually good friends with a, four, a couple of your past delegates. Actually, Jimmy D and I are good friends. We go way back. And I got involved in service. And I was a true AA geek. And I'm running around with the big book. And I had the concordance. And I had a highlighter. And I, I would have a 30-minute discussion with you, whether I was recovered or recovering. In the veins of my neck were you jumping out. And the truth was I was using the big book as a weapon, not as a tool, you know. And I was one of those guys, and, and you know, and you'd be sitting there saying, damn, if 
it was so good. Why are you so angry? <laughs> and, you know, over the years, uh, I, I've mellowed out and I no longer feel uh, the need to have discussions with people. Listen, I know what worked in my life. The steps of the outlay uh, outlined in the big book. If you're interested, that's cool. We could do some work. If you're not interested, that's cool. I no longer feel the need to be right. And I can't tell you how many friendships I've ruined because the need to be right, you know. And uh, things started happening. And I started getting older. Like I did young people. So, I, you know, I, I was Ikipao, traveling all over. My first Ikipao, uh, uh 1989, Salt Lake City. And it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, just traveled the country and friends throughout the country, you know. And then... You know, I, I was uh, jogging one day because God forbid, I'm an alcoholic. God forbid we just jog, right? No, I, I'm running 15 miles a day, three times a week because I want to run the Boston Marathon. A little impulsive, but that's my, and to run Boston, you got to qualify. So I'm actually training to do the Marine Corps Marathon. And one day I trip. I, I'm not the most graceful guy. We're a size 13. I trip. I hurt my shoulder and it was throwing my stride off. I said, I got to go get that checked out because I really want to do this race. I went to get checked out. It wasn't the trauma from the fall. It was a tumor pressing against my lung, lung cancer. I never smoked in my life. I mean, weed a couple of times, but that doesn't count. I never smoked in my life, lung cancer. So I went to go get a second opinion. It got confirmed. I said, wow, I, at this point, so I'm 33 years old. I'm sober six years. I'm running 15 miles, three, three, four times a week. I'm in the best shape of my life. I got things to do, people to see, places to go. I ain't got time for this. I got the second opinion. I remember clear as bell when it got confirmed. I, I got sick in the, in the doc's office. I, I, I can imagine, you know. So I, I was involved in service. I was going to be the youngest delegate ever from my area. Who that delegate was and how old they were, I had no idea, but it was going to be me. Just nuts, you know. So I went through treatment and then I bounced back, and, you know, I was, you know, and, but however, the cancer came back and then I really got sick. And, uh, I had one surgery, they removed the lower left lobe and they eventually took the entire lobe, left lobe. And, you know, I was just wiped out, man. And I, I couldn't even make meetings. You know, I, I was, after being in the hospital four weeks at a time, then going home and just, just stuck in the house. And, and you know, we had like, you know, 1900 meetings a week so there's no reason not to make a meeting but when people start coming to my house to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous I've been a taker I, I took my entire life the only thing I gave was heartache and misery and people came to my house to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm just not talking about my friends I'm talking about somebody I may have met once or twice at the assembly you know Thank God for good doctors, but I, I believe in the power of prayer, you know. And then, you know, I bounced back and things are cool. And, uh, you know, um, I wound up getting stabbed very severely. At work. And uh, so uh, the city was going to put me out on a disability pension. I called the FOP, our union. I said, they're going to screw me. They want to put me out. He said, Bob, they're just going to give you your pension. And, uh, and I was single and I said, okay. And, so I went back to grad school and uh, uh, got an MSW and, and then got rehired by the city uh, doing counseling in the EAP unit and, and union politics. It's funny, for a while I worked organized crime, now organized labor. There's really sometimes a fine line between organized crime and organized labor. So, but whatever. So one day I'm in a, in a meeting, union meeting, and I ask a question. 
I don't like the answer. Resentments, you know, armed with the facts. So I, long story short, I do a little investigation. And six months later, I uh, I, I determined that the president and the treasurer were robbing, robbing the union. So I turned them in, uh, you know, caught a big fiasco. The international came in, placed the union in, into receivership. These people were removed from office and prosecuted. And, and uh, so then six months after that, uh, the union said that they did a forensic audit and they believed that we were in a condition to, uh, to run ourselves again. And, uh, they nominated me to be the president. I said, whoa, whoa, I'm sorry. I don't do politics. I, I, I'm in AA service. I don't do politics. But no, I said, I, I, I'm the counselor. And, and so long story short, I became the president. And for the last five years, I was, I've been the president of the union for the city employees. Now, this past summer, you know, things, uh, things just, it just got out of hand. And uh, I no longer, I got reelected last year. It's three-year term. I got reelected to a second term last year with 75% of the vote. This is a job I could have had forever. But just with the things are going on, I, I just didn't, I just didn't like what was going on. And I didn't want to be part of it. It was like I was bringing it home. And so, oh, and let me back up. Then I turned 50. Whoa, that was a tough day. Never, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. Never married, no kids. And then, you know, the next day I was okay with it. But like I said, I'm, I, you know, I'm one of eight. I, I got, you know, four of my siblings are grandparents. The coil name is being carried on. Uh, but you know, the old adage, when to find out if God has a sense of humor, tell him your plans. I was, uh, I got married at the age of 51 for the first time and the only time in my life. And uh, to a girl that I dated 10 years before, she lived in Omaha. I had burned my bridges on the East Coast. I was real knucklehead with women. So, but I, uh, my sponsor lived in Omaha uh, in Bellevue. And that's where I, Libby and I were dating for a bit. And then I ended it. And we reconnected. And actually, by next month, November, we'll be married nine years. I love my wife. Getting married is the second best thing that happened to me after getting sober. I've engaged in a lot of bad behavior with women, double digits a year of sobriety. And I used to hide behind the fact consenting adults. And even though that's the case, my behavior was still creepy, you know, and, and the steps helped, but the steps enabled me to get sober long enough to see that I really needed additional assistance. And I went out and got the assistance to deal with that. I'm glad I waited as long as I did to marry, to get married. Because if I did it one day sooner, I, I could have I could have blown it, you know. And my wife makes me a better AA. She makes me a better person. She's a phenomenal AA herself. And when she came to Philadelphia, she had a tough time because she was a big deal back home. She came to Philadelphia, she wasn't. And it was a tough time for her. But, uh, you know, she adjusted. And I go to meetings, well, not now because of COVID. But when I would go to meetings, I would hear girls share. And I, I, I just knew somewhere along the line, she was in the line. Now, funny thing, my wife didn't take my last name, which is okay. I understand. And she wanted to forge her own identity. So, and when she's here, like for a year, like we go to different meetings, then I would go to meetings and go pick her up and people look back and forth. And they say, really? <laughs> That's your husband? You're married? Because you can imagine, uh, you know, people, you know, I'm kind of like very conservative, you know, retired detective. And she's like 20 years younger than me. 
uh, all this ink and she's a felon. But it was funny. On the outside, we may not look like, but for, we, we just hit it off. And uh, I just love being married. You know, so uh, because of the cancer, she never wanted to have children. And then, but however, a little over a year ago, she said, because she started hanging out with girls her age and they started having babies. And she said, Bobby, I like to have a baby. I said, okay, honey. And we were unsuccessful. And I knew I had to be the problem, the age, the, all the chemo and stuff. So I went to the, a doctor and he looked me dead in the eye and says, you cannot have children. He said, not naturally. There's other things you can do, but you just, you can't have children. I said, okay. I came home. I told Libby that. And, uh, and I said, what do you want to do? She says, no, she says, I'm fine. It's, it's a God deal. Uh, I'm fine. And I said, okay. And again, just handling it with dignity and grace as she does just about everything. Never says another word. So I, I, I was 59. Last, and, uh, well, this is last year uh, in 19. September of uh, 19, I turned 59. I come from work and she I get to the door and she's holding three sticks in her hand. I said, what's that? And she says, you know what that is? I said, what's that mean? She said, you know what that means? And uh, what that means? And uh, pregnant. And unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, it's, it wasn't the immaculate conception. I'm not going to try to, but it was a miracle, just to say. But however, it was, uh, and we were excited, you know, and, and she was um, well into her second trimester. And it was, uh, uh, there was an accident and uh, we lost the baby right before Christmas. And it, it, it was a tough time for both of us. And people said, like, are you mad? Are you angry? And no, no, just sad. We were deeply sad. And, you know, and, and it took us a while. And, you know, we didn't celebrate Christmas. And But, you know, we, we, we had the fellowship. You know, we had our friends. We were plugged in. And I've been sober long enough. And I've seen some people go through some terrible things through no fault of their own. And they get through it a day at a time. That's what God promises us, a day at a time. And sometimes we got to break that days down to the hours. God, just let me get through this hour, you know. But it works. It does. And, you know, things, uh, you know, and if it's to be, it took us a while and we're back on the beam and we're trying some other things. And if it were to be, it's to be. And if not, that's cool, too. But uh, it's just a great life that I got, I, you know, that we have, that I share with someone. And, I love being sober. I got sober in a neighborhood where the sign of success was to get a union book. And if you didn't get arrested by a certain age, you could become a civil servant, cop, fireman, mailman, whatever. But let's say we have a lot of longshoremen in my neighborhood, you know, close to the river on the docks. And let's say you want to be a longshoreman or even an iron worker. Well, we'll use iron worker, better analogy. So you, you work the job four days a week and one day you go to school. You're an apprentice. And then at the end of four years, you become a journeyman. I got four minutes left. So these are all the controversial remarks. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is like. We're like a union. And when you show up, you're brand new. You're an apprentice. And you get yourself a sponsor. And if your sponsor has not done the steps, he or she has no business sponsoring you. How do you do that? How do you know they did the steps? Well, you ask them. It's out of two things, yes or no. The person says yes, that's your person. And they take you under their wings and they share their experience, strength, and hope with you. And they take you through the steps. And then you, you got your own experience. 
and you take an apprentice, a sponsee underneath your wing. It's been working that way since June 10th of 1935. Why do you need a dirt ball from South Philly to come here and tell you to do it any differently? Listen, I'm not the poster boy of Alcoholics Anonymous. I invite you to come live with me. Well, you can't now that I'm married. But before I said, come live with me for a week. See the type of guy that I am. I make mistakes. Making mistakes doesn't get me drunk. It's justifying those mistakes or defending those mistakes that will lead to the arrogance that will lead to the drink. I'm not the guy that I was 32 years ago. I like to think I'm not the guy that was three years ago. And if I am, shame on me. You know, uh, that kid on the bike, what happened to him? God, you know the old adage, God, God takes care of drunks, fools, and children. I hit the trifecta. That kid wasn't hurt seriously, and I had an opportunity to make amends to him. He was actually the same age as one of my younger brothers. He, too, came from a big family. And even though I didn't know the kid personally, I knew the family, and I had an opportunity to make amends to him, you know? God is good. Uh, AA has, you know, I no longer had that resentment against the church. I no longer practiced the religion. I was raised as a kid, but I no longer blame the church. The church wasn't the problem. The Air Force wasn't the problem. The police department wasn't the problem. I was the problem. I was the problem long before I picked up the drink. I definitely was the problem as I drank. And when I put the drink down, until I changed, until I embarked on this way of living, I was still the problem. I wish you well. I don't wish you luck because luck ain't and nothing to do with it. If there's anyone new, I don't want you to think like sobriety is like and the wheel falls on you and today's your day to drink. People said I did the steps and still drank. No, you didn't. Nowhere in the steps does it say go out and get a 40. It just doesn't say that. In fact, in my book, it tells me if I do certain things one day at a time, you know, I won't drink. When all else fails. Work with another alcohol. Get out of yourself, you know? I love being sober. And this whole Zoom thing, at, at first, I, I wasn't, you know, just because generation, like a, not, not the most tech-savvy guy. So uh, at the end of the first week, my wife says, you want to check out some of them Zoom meetings? Thirty At that point, 31 years. Ah, that's not real AA. No, I'm not interested. Second week into the shutdown, you want to check out one of those Zoom meetings? And I know what she was telling me. I've been zooming all over. I just not in Philadelphia, but throughout the states, uh, overseas. It's pretty cool. And I, I just think that Bill and Bob are looking down at us, and that this is amazing. That Alcoholics Anonymous goes through anything. I was always like when when there was uh, like nine eleven. I, I I went up on the the. Uh, the 11th was a Tuesday. I went up on the 13th and it was up there for several weeks. Uh, we, we started a meeting at Ground Zero. Um, we were supposed to do Wikipa in New Orleans uh, for Katrina and that, that changed. And obviously what happens to Katrina, uh, what happened in New Orleans, but AA, AA gets by. And I'm always uh, curious what's happening in communities when these uh, uh, tragedies occur. AA comes through and here we are in the biggest pandemic in hundred years and AA is coming through. It's, it's amazing. I wish you well. I don't wish you luck. Like I said, luck has nothing to do with it. I thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I now have, it's 8.59, so I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby C. I sure didn't enjoy that, and I'm sure the listeners did as well. Now, speaking of the listeners, remember, we don't want you sharing any of your gossip, but please do take time to share this 
episode with a friend or family member, if it impacted you, it may be just what they need today. Now, on to a little bit of a listener de la feedback. Bill C. writes in, and not the Bill C. that you've heard on the podcast many, many times over. This is another Bill C. And Bill C. says, hello, John, longtime listener, first time emailer. I hope this email finds you well. Well, it does, Bill C. I started listening to your podcast sometime in 2019. It really is a meeting between meetings. Anytime I need to listen to someone, share their experience, strength, and hope, Sober Speak is there for me. Oh, you're welcome, Bill. I'm glad that worked out for you. Whether I'm driving, running, or just doing chores around the house, I can, quote, get to a meeting, unquote. I am 20 months sober, thanks to my higher power, my sponsor, the Serenity Club, and yourself, along with all of the speakers that you share. It always seems like they talk about exactly what I need to hear when I'm having doubts. Keep up the good work and add me to the Super Secret Facebook group if you would be so kind. Thank you and God bless. Bill C. Well, Bill C., as you know, we got you into that Facebook group, and I'm so glad that you wrote in, and I'm so glad we can be a part of your journey. John S. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Jim writes in, and he says, John, Sober Speak is not my meeting between meetings. These days, it is my meeting. Jim says, I'm struggling with the, and by the way, I know Jim, uh, he's a, a good friend of the program, and uh, thank you for writing in, Jim. He says, I'm struggling with the format of most Zoom meetings. Frankly, too much whining and too much talk about COVID. I know people need to talk and need someone someone to listen to, but, but, but brother, I'm topped out on Trump and COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, Jim. I hear you. That being said, John, I have I have come more and more to focus every week on the listener feedback. Now, he's talking about you guys who write in with your listener feedback. He says, a few weeks ago, Robert from the northern UK wrote in, and he was really struggling. And the next week, Kimberly wrote in with a similar story of struggling to get through the day without drinking. So Robert and Kimberly, if you're listening, obviously Jim and I know others are listening to this feedback. He says, please remind them that you that when you read listener feedback, others are listening, sharing their story and their pain and in their corner, rooting, oh, oh, scar. I'm so sorry. Please remind them that when you read their listener feedback, others are listening, sharing their story and their pain, and in their corner, rooting for their success in the program. Last week, my daughter and I had a remembrance day for my son-in-law. Jim lost his son-in-law, um, his daughter's husband. Um, oh gosh, they had a remembrance day for a son-in-law. He says, who died a year ago and his death 
became my excuse for drinking after 11 months sobriety. And now I've celebrated my second 11-month anniversary. Soon I will have a year. Thank you, John. Best to you and Shannon. Well, Jim, my friend, you can't see me right now, but I'm doing little namaste hands. Thank you for writing in, and thank you for sharing that, and thank you for being there for the uh, for the people who write in on listener feedback and listening into them and providing your feedback on their feedback. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Anyway, Susan writes in and she says, Hi, John. I'm Susan. I'm from Philly. Well, Susan, this couldn't have been a more opportune time for you to write in. In other words, we just had Bobby C from Philly. Anyway, she says, I'm, I'm Susan. I'm from Philly and I live in the UK. How did that happen? She says, <laughs> I don't know. That must be quite a culture shock for you and for them. I'm sure, Susan. She says, I'm in Al-Anon. Growing up, my mother drank, then went to AA in the early 90s, and I went to Al-Anon. Then I married an alcoholic and went back to Al-Anon in September of 2019. My mother started drinking again a few years ago. My mother's family drinks, drank, just seems to be inescapable. I'm looking for an inspiration. I like the open AA meetings. I have a sponsor. I'm on step three, moving at a less than glacial pace. (laughs) Sorry to be a bit all over the place, Susan. No problem, Susan. I'm glad you're able to write in. And uh, we always love to hear from the Alanons. And uh, I I can't even imagine you with that Philly accent uh, over there in uh, the United Kingdom, but I'm sure it's all working out for you. Angela writes in and she says, John, I found Sober Speak during the toughest time in my life due to this disease. I was out the door with my one-year-old in tow and set out to live the life of a single mom, filled with fear and resentment. By the grace of God, my alcoholic husband is now six months sober, and we are both in recovery. Our family is healing one day at a time. Sober Speak is a big part of our recovery as a family. Thank you for your service, Angela. P.S. My hubby was at the live meeting with me too. She's talking about the Gary K. live meeting that we had last week. And she says, who would have thought that we we would have been at a meeting together? Question mark. Oh, that's great, Angela. And I'm so glad for you and your husband and your one-year-old and I'm glad you're all getting better one day at a time. Katie writes in via Instagram. Oh, and I this is Katie from, she's the grateful member of Al-Anon in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with the purple mohawk. I had read something that she had written in on Instagram like, couple weeks ago, I think. I don't know. It all starts to run together. Anyway, she says, hi, John. Thank you so much for bringing Jared on to share his story. I related so much to what he had to say. And Jared is, I believe, episode number 163. And it's called uh, Life Can Change in the Blank of an Eye. And she says, Katie says, I lost my brother on October 15th, 2011 from an accidental drug dose, which is what brought me to Al-Anon. When Jared said that his family lost his sister Amber, but got him back, 
It really hit me hard in the feels, she said, F-E-E-L-S. I've never heard that this good. That's exactly how I feel about what happened to my family. This journey of recovery that I'm on is a direct result of my brother's tragic passing. And although it's probably the most difficult thing that I've ever been through in my life, it brought me into the rooms of Al-Anon and to a life of recovery, and I am so grateful for that. I related so much to Jared's story, and I'd love to reach out to him and let him know. So if you have an email address you would be willing to share, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much for all you do to spread the program across the world. KDS, grateful member of Al-Anon in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Katie, that's lovely. Uh, as you know, I'm going to get you and Jared in touch with, with each other. And, uh, you know, I never know exactly when I put these episodes out, who is going to be hit, why they're going to be hit, and what they're going to pick up from these particular episodes. It's kind of like AA. We just, or AA or Al-Anon, right? We just go to the meetings, you share, and you share from the heart, and you don't know exactly how that's going to reverberate. Is that the correct word, right? How, what sort of ripple effect it's going to have not only in somebody in that meeting, but through maybe somebody throughout the world because of the words that you shared. So, Jared, thank you for sharing your story. And Katie, I'm glad you could relate it. You could relate to it. Amy writes in and Amy says, Good morning, John M. I kind of went into a good morning, Vietnam. Remember that uh, movie. But nonetheless, she says, My name is Amy E. And my sobriety date is May 6th of 2019. I am from Ohio and I grew up in a very small town. A map dot, really. It's called Toboso, T-O-B-O-S-O. She says, you can look it up on a map. It's a dot. Laugh out loud. I lived my entire life hiding from the blatant fact that I am an alcoholic. I came from a long line of alcoholics on my dad's side, and I swore, I w- oh, oh, and I wore this as a badge of honor. They may have been alcoholics, but me, no, I was a professional. Alcoholism couldn't touch me. I had a good job, my bills were paid, my daughter was taken care of, and that's just how it was. It wasn't until I stopped remembering that I realized I had a decision to make. All of a sudden, alcohol betrayed me. Good way to put that, Amy, and I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that. What once was a good time became painful, and I became a monster. What I once would brag about, like, quote, hey, I killed a case last night, I rock, unquote. Well, that I started to hide. And I said to other people, I only had a couple. Sheesh. I lost my stepdad and my grandma within three months of each other. And that is when I be, that's when it became a blur. My nights became my days. I was drinking on lunch. I was skipping events because I was ashamed to drink in front of people. I was drinking to forget and wanted to be alone. I made the decision to become sober. And I had to look into my daughter's and my partner's eyes and see that I had broken their heart. 
that I was actually mean to them in a drunken stupor. I was ashamed, angry with myself, jealous of those that could drink, and I was literally a giant ball of emotions that I knew was that I was going to have to deal with, but I had no idea how. I got myself a big book and I just started reading. I got all the material I could on alcoholism, on grief, on self-improvement. I didn't want all the rainbows and butterflies reading. I wanted truth in big capital letters. I wanted to know if there were actually people like me, and I wanted to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how they recovered, and how they continue to recover, so I read. I had withdrawals. I lost my appetite. I couldn't sleep, but something miraculous happened. I couldn't think clearly. I learned that no matter what, I had to take it one day at a time, sometimes one minute at a time. I needed to find a hobby, so I started drawing and running. Both allowed me to release that pent-up anxiety, one mentally and one physically. Today, I am proud to say that I completed my first 10K, September 16th. That's great. That is fantastic. Uh, In honor of those that lose their life to suicide, veterans specifically. I ran along the beach in North Carolina, and I learned a lot about myself that day. I learned that I wanted bigger things, and I wanted to help those that I can, even if it's just from sharing my story. I want people to know that they are not alone and that this thing is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a disease and a relentless one at that. I want people to know that they have someone to walk with them if they want. I stumbled across I stumbled across Soberspeak when I decided to try out podcasts. I tried listening to some others, but I just couldn't get engaged. The first episode that I listened to was Bill C. Live, episode number 135. It grabbed my attention immediately. Listening, listening to him was like listening to myself, but with a man's voice laugh out loud. I have listened to that episode too many times to count, and it is what got me connected to the podcast. I'm so thankful for this podcast, and I appreciate you more than you will ever know for doing this wonderful thing. Now that I have rambled on, and I thought I would share with I thought I would share with you one of my favorite quotes. I have this hanging in my office, and it's the first thing I see in the morning. And here's a quote. We aren't 15 anymore. We don't wear our innocence on our sleeves. We have hearts wrapped up in scotch tape. We get up every morning, look in the mirror and say, good morning, fighter. Today, be stronger than your storm. J.C. Help one save many. Thank you. John M. from the bottom of my heart. Oh, that was so sweet. Thank you for writing all that, Amy. I sure do appreciate it. You know, I'm trying to figure out where that quote's from. Now, when you put JC at the end, I thought, well, is that Jesus Christ? Mm, I doubt it. I don't think he ever wrote about waking up in the morning or wrote, he didn't write anything. I don't think anyway, um, or about being a fighter. So I wonder who JC is, but nonetheless, let me, let me read that quote that that uh, Amy has uh, hanging up again. And it says, we aren't 15 anymore. 
We don't wear our innocence on our sleeves. We have hearts wrapped in scotch tape. We get up every morning, look into the mirror and say, good morning, fighter. Today, be stronger than your storm. And then she put at the end, help one save many. Thank you. Thank you, John. And well, thank you, Amy. That is so sweet. I really appreciate you writing all that. And uh, I know that your story will help others that are listening to it. Avery writes in, Avery says, I live in a little town. I live in Littleton, Colorado. I've been to Littleton, Colorado, actually several times, Miss Avery. She says, I've been sober since October 5th of 2009. I got sober at 27 in Denver. Yes, Littleton is just a little north of Denver. Uh, I said that. She didn't say that. But nonetheless, I have loved AA ever since diving into recovery, unity, and service. I just love it, exclamation point. Well, Avery, I love it too. I'm so glad you're writing in. She says, right now, I am serving as the technology chair in Area 10. These positions always push me to grow through more of my defects. I found the sober, I found sober speak on my Apple podcast app. I have liked a few of the speakers, but you have, but have mostly and recently enjoyed Matthew. Bill C. and Buddy C. Avery. Well, thank you, Avery, for writing in. And I love your enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous. I truly do. Barbara writes in. And Barbara says, Aloha, John. So Amy, or excuse me, Barbara had a uh, uh, a Hawaii uh, uh, type of email address. And I'm not going to say what her email address is, obviously. But she says, I normally live in Hawaii. But for now, during COVID, I am living in Lake Tahoe. And then she says, I know, nice choices, right? Yeah, those are two really nice choices. That's great, Barbara. She says, I'm actually a grateful member of Al-Anon, and I found your show through The Recovery Show. And that's my friend Spencer over there. If you haven't listened to The Recovery Show, I would highly recommend it. And he says, she says, I am learning so much about alcoholism through your podcast, which I find much easier to, quote, attend than the open meetings. I had a really bad experience with my first Zoom meeting where someone, quote, bombed the meeting and they used my name to do it. So I was a little traumatized from that. Oh, no. I'm so sorry, Miss Barbara. That is really a drag. But nonetheless, she says, uh, that said, I watched the Zoom meeting last night with Gary Kay, who was amazing. I learned so much about myself from him. I also learned about, I also really enjoyed Matthew M parts one and two. My husband is my qualifier and we are separated now after 40 years of marriage and this disease. I am getting used to this life without drama, uh, without the drama of alcoholism and the tools of Al-Anon. It's pretty amazing so far. Still, it helps to learn about the disease because as I'm sure you know, I am sick 
two exclamation point who knew question mark i thought i was perfect exclamation point oh well i get to live in wonderful places so i suppose i can't have everything smiley face (laughs) that's right barbara i really enjoy the humor of your show and i often laugh out loud it is truly appreciated thank you for reaching out and for your service barbara well barbara and lake tahoe enjoy your time in Lake Tahoe and or Hawaii, and I'm glad that you are on the road to recovery yourself. Nancy writes in, she says, Hi, John, I truly appreciate you and the message of hope you bring to us all in recovery. I loved listening to Gary K. last night. And obviously, these are people that, that came into the uh, the live event with Gary Kay. She says, I was listening to Bill C. Step 10 this morning on my walk, and he and Matt are my favorite speakers. Thank you, Nancy. Well, thank you, Nancy. I appreciate you writing in. Last but not least, we have John M. who writes in, on the Instagram, direct messages on the Instagram. And this is not me, John M., writing myself. This is another John M. In fact, he spells his name J-O-N. And he says, hey, John M., I really like the podcast, and I'm John M. I have been sober for nine months listening to your podcast and 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 blah, blah. Listening, listening to your podcast has really helped me with these last few months. It keeps getting me by until my next meeting. Keep it going. I don't know what I would do without these meetings between meetings. Thank you. Well, I thank you, Mr. John, J-O-N-M. I appreciate you. And I don't know where I would be without you all. So it's, it's a, it's a mutual kind of uh, respect and love. All right, everybody. It's a little bit of a longer episode this week. I know. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, all that we had to offer. Keep coming back. It works as you, if you work it. I do this one week at a time, and I'm sure I'll be back next week. God bless you all. Love you. Uh, like I said, keep coming back. Bye-bye.